Lord, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity to look at this beautiful chapter of your heart toward your people. We ask you to guide and lead us. Show us what you would want us to see from this. In Jesus' name, amen. Hosea chapter 11. All of the, so far in Hosea, we've had the picture of Hosea, Mary, and Gomer, the children's names showing the God's judgment upon the people. He bought back Gomer so that he understands, so that he would understand and have a picture of God's love toward us. And then for all these chapters that we've been into, we've been talking about the judgment that's coming upon the northern kingdom for their sin. This chapter changes and shows us the heart of God toward his people. And it's a really beautiful chapter, and it kind of almost sticks out like a sore thumb when you get to it, because it's been judgment, 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 and now we hear about God's love for his people. Even though there's going to be a little bit of you know, saying judgment is due, we get to see God's love. And this is a beautiful chapter. So chapter 11, starting at verse 1. When Israel was a child, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. And as the... As they called them, so they went from them. They sank, sacrificed to ba Baalim and burned incense to graven images. I taught Ephraim also to go, taking them by their arm, but they knew not that I healed them. I drew them with cords of a man and with bands of love. I was to them as they that take off the yoke of their, on their jaws, and I laid meat in, unto them. So here is God talking about his great love for his people. He says, I, when Israel was a child, I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. So here we have the picture of God calling the people of Israel. And if you remember that call, it goes all the way back to Abraham in the Ur of the Chaldeans. And God says, Abraham, leave your family, leave your people and go to a place that I will tell you. Now, this is God calling Israel when there's nothing. There's Abraham and his wife, and Lot and Abraham's servants. But as far as the family goes, there's two people. And God calls them out. And he says, I called them. I loved them. I called them. And the next thing we know, we have Abraham giving birth to Isaac. Isaac gives birth to Jacob. Jacob gives birth to the 12 sons and one daughter. And then, through great miracles and everything that happened, Joseph ends up being the prime minister of Egypt. Uh, stockpiles, you know, 20% of all the grain during those good years. And then, uh, during the famine, saves basically his family, all of Egypt and his family. And... When they go down there, there's 70 people in the family of Israel. So they go to Egypt, and there's 70 people in the nation of Israel. Not a nation yet, not even barely a tribe, right? Now it's just a large family. And then after four generations from the time that Abraham was called, they leave Israel, or they leave Egypt when God calls them out of Egypt, at about 3 million people. That's a lot of people from 70 people to around 3 million people when they leave Egypt. After just a couple generations, four if you look at the book of, book of Chronicles, from the time that they got 
the end of end to 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 when they were called or when they went in to when they were called. And God says, I have called my child out of Egypt. And we know all the stuff that happens, the, the ten plagues in Egypt, the the wandering in the wilderness, they they started worshiping idols right away at Mount Sinai. They started worshiping idols. And, you know, we don't really understand how infected the people were with the ide- ideology of Egypt. That's what they knew. They did not have a Bible to read. They did not have all this stuff. They had the call of Abraham. They had the history of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that's about all they really knew. There were a handful of stories and then they go to Egypt, and Egypt's full of idol worshipers and all of the stuff that God had called Abraham out of. The Ur of the Chaldees is where Nimrod rules. This is where all of false religion starts. And God says, Abraham, I want you to leave. I want you to leave the hotbed of all of this false religion and go to the place that I'm going to tell you because I'm going to make you special. And we believe that Abraham was not an idol worshiper. We believe that he was following under uh, Eber and that he was a worshiper of the one God that Eber was, was the head of the family for. And so we have all of this going on in this one little sentence there that, you know, that we have. And God has said, I've called my people out. And in verse 2 says, And as they called them, so they went from them they sacrificed in Baalim and burned incense to graven images. And God says, I called you out. I did all these great things for you. And what did you do? You started worshiping idols. And, you know, this is something that is really an interesting statement is how easy it is to find ourselves worshiping idols. Now, in our day and age, we go, well, most people go, well, I don't have any idols in my life. And you're going, well, let's see, what kind of idol, what takes up all of your time? For some people, I know some people that work is their idol. You know, the work is, they'll sacrifice everything for work. Now, they'll tell themselves, like I did when I was a workaholic, I'm doing it for the family, I'm doing it for all these things. In reality, I did it just because I liked the prestige of work and, and the numbers and the and being at the top. And yes, my family got rewarded. They didn't have me, but they had you know, they had the stuff that came with it. Uh, some people have, you know, some people, family is their God. They'll sacrifice everything for their family. And we need to be careful. And many people in America, TV is their God. Oh, the you know, or it could be the phone. In today's world, it could be your smartphone or your computer. There's all kinds of things that become the center of your life. And we need to be very careful about that because all of those things become idols and even we as Christians can easily start following basically idols. And our religion can become an idol. There are people who come to church every time the doors open, not because they want to worship God and be with God's people, but they need to be seen doing the right thing and they think that that's going to be the case. So we need to be careful, even good things can become an idol if they're done for the wrong reason. And here's God telling his people, you know, the first thing you did was you started worshiping Baalim, which is the male plural for Baal. 
And so, and you burned incense to graven images. And this goes all the way back to Mount Sinai when Moses is up on the mountaintop getting the Ten Commandments from God, getting the instructions from God, and the people tell Aaron, you know, we don't know what happened to this Moses guy. He's been gone for 40 days, you know, uh, make us a god. And I've always loved Aaron's excuse when Moses comes down off the mountain. He goes, you know, well, I don't know what happened, Moses. I threw the gold, the gold in the fire and out popped this, this golden calf. It was a miracle, Moses. I don't know how this golden calf got formed, you know, uh, trying to justify what he had done. Uh, and this has been where they were at. Then we have the uh, Saul and the fall of Saul and then the fall of of uh, Rehoboam and Jeroboam makes golden calf worship one of the big things in the northern kingdom and they start worshiping every god under the sun and even in the southern kingdom they have problems and it starts with Solomon. Solomon builds temples to all the gods of his wives and after he builds God's temple he starts building temples for every one of his wives and so he fills the mountains around Jerusalem with idols and temples. So this has been the proclivity of Egypt to always turn away from God. But that is where our hearts are. If, they're not, if we're not really careful, our heart is desiring anything but God. And it's really sad because when we're a Christian, we should desire God, and we usually do when we're really following him. But it becomes real easy because the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can know it according to the scriptures? And it's real easy to slip back and say, all right, God, I'm going to follow something else. You know, I am flesh and blood. I like to see something. And that is part of the problem that we have. The, we're told four times in the Bible, the just shall live by faith. And that is living without sight. And it's hard to live without sight. And a lot of people will tease us as Christians. How can you follow a God that's invisible? How can you follow this? You know, in, but you know, when we're really walking with him, I don't feel like God is invisible. I know that I know that he's there. I know who he is. And I know my walk with him is good. And so, you know, it is, yes, it's by faith. I don't see anything, but by the same token, he gives all the evidences of where he is and what he's doing. So I don't always feel like it's by faith that I walk after God because of how clear I can see his hand and everything that goes on. But Israel is walking away from him. And then it kind of says in verse 3, I taught Ephraim also to go, taking them by the arm, but they knew not that I healed them. Now this word for taught, it's literally, I taught them to walk. All right? And Ephraim's the name mostly for the northern kingdom, but it, it's another name for Israel you know, as a whole. But God says, I taught Israel to walk. I, I gave them my Ten Commandments. I gave them the, the 613 laws. I, I told them how to give sacrifices. I told them how to do all these things to... The, to honor me and he goes and I took them by the arm I love this picture 
you know, he, he says, I held them by their arms. And if you've ever trained a child to walk, what do we do? We hold them, we hold their arms, we let them learn to stand, and then we kind of walk them a little bit, and then we kind of regret that we ever taught them to walk because they're now everywhere, all right? Uh, but he says, I took them by their arms, and then he goes, and they knew not that I healed them. How easy is it for us to forget what God is doing? You know, and even in our walk, sometimes we look at it and say, wow, I am just so blessed. And we start out with, I am blessed. God is meeting my needs. He is doing great things. And then after a while, we forget that it's God meeting our needs, and we start just whatever. We forget that it's God. And, you know, look how fortunate I am, or look how everything is working my way, and everything is good, and, and we forget to give God the glory. And here's God saying, they knew not that I healed them. Didn't I love him and called my son? Yeah, child, I love him. Mm-hmm. Part of this is that it is a prophecy of Jesus, that Jesus would be called out of, out of uh, Egypt. But it's also, I think, because God is saying how, how valuable he sees his children. Uh, he sees them as that male with important rights, and the male gets the inheritance, and... And all of that during in all of this, so he's, I think he, I think that's part of what he's saying there as well. So in that, in that uh, verse, both him and my son can, is both referring to Jesus as well as Israel. As as well as Israel, because that prophecy is definitely a mosaic, uh, messianic prophecy that Jesus was called out out of Egypt, and this is why it's hard for us to understand how how the. Uh, Pharisees did not know Jesus' background. You know, they knew the Messiah had to be born in Bethlehem, but as far as they knew, Jesus was from Nazareth. You know, it wasn't, they didn't understand that he was born in Bethlehem, went to Egypt, just like the verses said, and then ended up in Nazareth, which all three things were said to be Messianic, that he would be born in Bethlehem, he'd, come out of, he'd be called out of Egypt, and that he would be called a Nazarene. Uh, so all of these things, you know, were from the scriptures, but the they never understood because all through there, the scribes and Pharisees say, Jesus of Nazareth. And that made them not believe that he was the Messiah because, hold it, it's supposed to be Jesus of Bethlehem, not Jesus of Nazareth. So all of those portions that come into it. But in, in the scriptures they were following, did it say he came out of Egypt? Did they just miss it or did they deny that or did they not have access to the knowledge that I don't think they even bothered to know his history. Okay, and how many of us, you know, there are people that just, uh, you know, how much of us will research, and this is kind of interesting to me, is how many people get into actors and actresses and singers and stuff and don't really know anything about them. They know their stage name and whatever, whatever gets in the publications, that's all they know, and they don't get any deeper, and I think that's kind of what it was with Jesus. They go... This Jesus from Nazareth, Galilee, uh, you know, Capernaum, you know, uh, he can't be the Messiah. The Messiah is supposed to be a, a son of David and, and comes from Bethlehem. So any of the translations capitalize him? I don't know. Mine doesn't. Translation infamous for not 
for some reason they have the newer versions of these have stopped capitalizing a lot of things. Part of it is because there was a lot of questions when they capitalized pronouns and stuff. And a lot of people go, well, we're not sure that this belongs to be, you know, to God. Uh, so they've started pulling back from it because one of the problems that we have going on is this higher criticism that came out of Germany that started attacking everything in the Bible. And there, and the higher criticism started out with the idea that it's, it's not what you think it is unless you can prove that it is. So uh, they took and reversed everything. You know, when we read things, we believe what we, that it's true unless somebody can prove that it's not. And their attitude was it's not true until it can be proven true. And when you're talking about a book that's 2,000 years old to, to 4,500 years old, it is very hard to prove anything beyond a shadow of a doubt. So... 1800s, 1800s, German rationalism. Uh, and it really harmed the church over the period of time. It, it uh, harmed the Catholic church in many ways. Uh, but it really take and said, well, you know, just like when we're doing the book of Hebrews, I've always been taught that it was written by Paul. Well, higher criticism said, nah, we're not really sure it's Paul, and we can't prove that it's Paul, so therefore it probably was not Paul. Uh, and it's like, okay, even though, you know, yes, and there's been some controversy, and we covered all that in the first chapter of, of Hebrews, but that has been their attitude is it's not true until we can prove it's true. And because the book is so old, we can't prove much of anything is true. Yeah, yeah uh, I, Paul, wrote this, and even then they probably wouldn't believe it. Uh, so... This is, and this is going on, and it is very, it's hitting our seminaries, it's hitting everything over the last 140 years or so, 180 years, and it's really caused confusion amongst pastors and teachers, because so many of them have been taught that everything, everything is false unless it's proven true, and that's a dangerous place to start, uh, and this is what happens even in our current history. You know, right now, we're rewriting American history. You know, and what they're rewriting it to is the most awful turn of events that you can possibly think of and discarding anything that has any uh, morality and value to it. And this is what, it all really does come back into high, uh, German higher criticism uh, and it's the outcome of that higher criticism. You know, let's, you know, let's just look at nothing good unless we can prove that it is. And this is a bad place to be. And that's a long-winded thing on why, why so many of the newer versions are dropping all the capital, capitals on it. And it doesn't bother me so much that they do because there were many times when they capitalized things that I disagreed that, you know, I looked at them going, I don't see how this is a prophecy of Jesus. I don't know how this is a statement of God. So there were places where they capitalized when they shouldn't have, and, but they've now gone way too far the other way, and they've taken away all the capitals, uh, capitalizations, you know, pretty much. Um, well, part of the problem there is the word consensus. 
I am not a big fan of the word consensus because you know, it's real easy to say, okay, nine scholars say this, one scholar says this, and you can still find out that the nine scholars you looked at were wrong. So, and this is why when we did How to Study the Bible, the very first statement I said is the most important tool that we have for studying the Bible is the Holy Spirit in prayer. Because the Holy Spirit will teach us. And there are many places where I have studied and I have studied and I have studied and I have leaned toward a minority opinion away from the majority or the consensus uh, and say, I don't agree with the consensus I, I, or the majority. I believe this. Now, if I find something and I'm the only person who I can find that believes it, then I have to really look and say, you know, am I way off track? <laughs> and it's, po you know, it's possible that I'm right, but if I'm the only one that's ever believed that in 2,000 years of study, I think there's a problem with what I'm thinking, all right? But if I find other scholars that I trust and everything that have come to the same conclusion, then I'll, I'll join them at that point because the Holy Spirit has guided me into this. And it's very important for us to learn to study and listen to God. Uh, after that, it said, they do not know that I healed them. Verse 4 says, I drew them with cords of a man, with bands of love, and I was to them as, as they that take off the yoke from their, on their jaws, and I laid meat unto them. God says, I drew them out. I loved them. He says, I took the burden from their mouth, uh, the yoke from their mouth, the bridle, and he goes, and I fed them. You know, and this is the beauty of what God does to us. He draws us to him with love. For God loved us first you know it says you know we love him because he first loved us and we don't truly ever understand and know love until we know the love of god because man's love is always a, a subjective love i love you because i get something out of the deal now i may not get a lot out of the deal but i get something you like me you, you give me attention uh, you appreciate me, whatever it is, we're, we in human form have a subjective love. God's love is objective or unconditional, as most people call it, which means he just loves. He chooses to love, and I love that. God loves me unconditionally, objective. He says, I love you. And because he says he loves us and he does not change, he will not ever stop loving us. And that's a beautiful statement. When I talk to people about marriage and what love is, I'm going, your love must be objective love because there will be a time when you really don't feel like you're getting anything out of the marriage. And then if you're, if you're married on subjective love, as most people do, somewhere between four to eight years, you don't love the person anymore because you're not getting what you want out of the relationship. And this is why objective love, getting to know God and his objective, unconditional love allows us now to love others with that same objective, unconditional love. And God says, I'm draw you out. I released the burden from you. I got rid of your bridle. I got rid of the yoke. And then I fed you. You know, that's a beautiful picture 
of how much God loved. And this is the people that's going out and worshiping idols that he's talking about. You know, this is God's loving care for his people. This is his loving care for us as Christians for, for him. Even when we do wrong, God says, I still love you. I'm still drawing you to me. Even when you don't keep in mind that this is what I'm doing, I'm there giving you this love. And I, and I just, I, when I read this chapter, it's just like, it is just a breath of fresh air in the middle of all this book. Uh, verse 5. He shall not return unto the land of Egypt, but to, but to the Assyrians shall his king, because he re, they refuse to return. And the sword shall abide in his, siri, in his cities and shall consume his branches and devour them because of their own counsels. And my people are bent to backsliding from me, though they called them to the Most High, none at all would exalt him. How shall I give you up, Ephraim? How shall I deliver you, Israel? How shall I make you as Adma? How shall I make you as Zeb Zeboim? My heart is turned within me. My my repentings are kindled together. I will not execute the fierceness of mine anger. I will not return to destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not man, the Holy One in the midst of you, and I will not enter into the city. So here we have this, again, kind of an interesting hodgepodge here. First he says... He shall not return to the land of Egypt, but to the Assyrians shall be his king because he refuses to return, and the refuses to return is to God. And so often, Israel wanted to return to Egypt. Now, Egypt is a picture of the world. So here we have Egypt called to be God's children, and every time they're turning around, they want to go back to the world's way of doing things. And... This is the way we are as Christians oftentimes. God has called us out of the world to worship him and to follow him. And so easily we drift back into the world and follow the world's way of thinking. And if we're not keeping our minds centered on God with thoughts of him and meditating on his word, it is easy to be drawn in back into the world. We watch television, we read books, we watch movies, we hang out with people. They all give us the wrong advice. You know, how many times do you get people together and they're giving ungodly advice that the world gives? Well, you know what? You know, you're in such a bad relationship. You just need to end that relationship and get out and get a divorce and just go find somebody new. Well, that's not what my God tells me to do in those situations. What he tells me to do is hard. I have to trust in him. And just love that individual. The world's way sounds so good, so easy. And then we, we watch a movie or a television show where somebody gets divorced and they get a better situation. It never works out that way in real life. You know, the grass is not greener on the other side of the fence. It may appear to be, but when you get there, you find out all your problems are still there because you're involved. <laughs> And it's usually, you're the problem. And so he says, 
I, they shall not return to Egypt like they want to, but they're going to go to Assyria. Assyria was going to conquer them because they refused to return to God. How hard it is for us when we refuse to turn back to God. And God says, I'm waiting for you. God is always there with mercy and with love and compassion and grace waiting for us to return. And, you know, it's a wonderful thing that he wants to, wants us. Yeah. And this is the thing that really is so bizarre to me. God created man, Adam and Eve, knowing that they were going to sin. He created them. It was not a surprise when they sinned. God wasn't up there in heaven saying, oh no, how, did, how in the world did they sin? He knew that they were going to sin. Before the foundation of the world, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit got together and said, God, you know, we're going to create man. Man's going to sin. Jesus, will you die for them? And Jesus said, yes. Before man was even created, before the foundation of the world was created, before there was anything, that conversation happened. And yet God created man and loves us. And, you know, from my human frailty on it, I look at it and say, God, I don't understand any of this. All right? Uh, and yet he says they refused to return. If they would just return, I would accept them. Verse, verse 6 says, And the sword shall abide in his cities and shall consume his branches and devour them because of their own counsels. Now notice that this stuff is happening. This is the consequence for their sins. Sin always has consequence. And it's not because God brings those consequences in. He has just made the law of sowing and reaping. If you do good things, good generally is returned. When you do bad things, bad is generally returned. And this is for the world and for Christians. If a lost person generally does good things, even though they're lost and they're not, they're not gods, they will be rewarded. And we all know people that are the nicest people in the world. They don't know Jesus at all but they would give you the shirt off their back, they would help you, they would give you anything, but they don't know God, and they reap the consequences of good deeds because they have so many of them. And that's all the laws of sowing and reaping. It is not God saying, well, let's see, this person needs to be rewarded because they did this, they need to be judged because they... It's him saying, I've just put a law, a law into place that, that works. And they says, the sword shall, shall not devour their cities. They, their branches shall be concerned, consumed and devoured because of their own counsels. They're doing what is right in their own eyes. And what that brings is the judgment and the consequences of sin. Sounds like today. Well, it's all through history. Yeah. All through history, the, the consequences of sin exist. And if we look at it, the same consequences keep happening over and over and over again. A nation rises up, they've got strong leaders, their people are active, they're strong, and they start getting peaceful, and they start getting lazy, and they start looking for entertainment, and the entertainment they look for is evil, and then eventually they fall. 
They're going to get into homosexuality. They're going to get into fornication, adultery, transgenderism, uh, all the stuff that we are meeting in our country right now. And so we are right there at historically falling away from being any kind of power. And that happened to Egypt. It happened to Assyria. It happened to Syria. Syria. It happened to Babylon. It happened to Greece. It happened to Rome. All right. All through history, we can look at these great nations that rise up. They get lazy and indolent and start looking for entertainment. And the entertainment they always start looking for is anything that's not godly. And they turn away from true godliness. And it starts with fornication and adultery, but always escalates. Always escalates into uh, homosexuality and transgenderism and all the other uh, sexual perversions that there are out there. And so we see this, and this is God saying, the sword is not leaving your city because of the choices that you are making, the counsel that you are making. Before the flood of Noah, it said that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. What are we seeing in our world today? Everywhere. And it's not just America. It literally is everywhere is doing what is right in their own eyes and justifying it. You know, and we're hearing things like, well, this is my truth. You know, don't tell me what your truth is. Don't tell me what God says about things. You know, you, know, you, you Christians, you, know, you believe that God speaks and that his word is true, but you know, look at all these other religions that don't say the same thing. Well, you know what? That when you don't believe that all, relig- all roads lead to heaven and that there's only one way to heaven, like Jesus said, it doesn't matter what the other religions tell me. It doesn't matter how they make up their own stories and and everything. I'm going to hold on to God's word and say God is true and every man is a liar. And that is something for us to understand. We get into the scriptures and say God is true. And I don't care what anybody else says. I don't care what I think. That is where it's really hard sometimes because if I get poisoned by the world's thinking, then all of a sudden I try to justify what I'm doing. And we have to be very careful of it. And this is why we can't totally be isolated from the world, but we also can't be so one with the world that we're polluting, polluting our, our mind. And this is why I tell everybody, you know, it is very funny as I watch TV shows that I used to think were okay when I was younger, and I look at the same shows, the, the good shows out there that are supposed to be good, and going, this show was not... You know, maybe not as bad as today's world, but it wasn't a godly show. You know, it wasn't raising God up. It was raising man's intellect. It was raising man's desires. Uh, it had good human attitudes. Yeah, everybody wasn't sleeping around with everybody and playing around, you know, on some of the older shows. But, you know, you look at it, you know, people love Westerns. Well, what's the plot of the Western? Good guy gets something bad happens from the bad guy and eventually kills the bad guy. And he's justified because he did it for a good reason. You know what? I look at my Bible and go, that's not God's answer to solving problems. You know, but I just throw those out. You know, how, you know, how many places do we see these little subtle 
things that are unbiblical. And we fill our mind with these thoughts and we don't realize the extent of how much we are polluted in our thinking. And it's very important that we understand the, the, the extent of our pollution if we're not careful. This is why we need to really analyze what it is we, we spend our time doing. What books do I read? What movies do I watch? And I'm even getting to the place where I see some of these Christian movies and I'm going, how could they be doing that in a Christian movie? And there are some things in Christian movies I'm looking at, I'm going, guys, did you read your Bible when you put this together? You're, you're picturing the world in, in your story. And, you know, and they'll say, just like every other entertainment, well, we're just reflecting reality. Well, you've got a little more higher standard there. You're supposed to be shaping reality, not reflecting reality, because all entertainment shapes reality. It's very, it doesn't reflect it. It shapes it and pushes it to the next level. So Christian entertainment needs to be able to say, we're pushing you into God's way of thinking and avoiding all the other stuff. And we need to be careful. It is so easy to pollute our mind and keep us from following God. Uh, verse uh, 7 says, And my people are bent to backsliding from me, though they call, though they called them to the Most High, none would exalt him. Bent to backsliding. In other words, they want to backslide there. It's natural. And this is the lost man. It is natural to walk away from God. It is natural for us as Christians, if we're not deep in his word and following closely on him, it is the natural thing for us to backslide. Don't believe it. Just look at your own life for a period of time and see how many times you find yourself doing things that you know better than. And you're going, why am I doing what I didn't want to do? And Paul said it this way in Romans. He goes, I do the things I don't want to do. I don't do the things I want to do. Oh, woe is me. Uh, we are bent to backsliding, just as Israel was. And the closer we walk with God, the, more, the less we will backslide. But if we, the further we stay away from God, the more we will backslide, because that is our innermost being. Our heart is deceitful, our flesh is deceitful, and when we're walking with God and we're having our flesh crucified and our mind is focused on Him, we get to walk without that backsliding. But when I start slipping away, I'm going to backslide. I'm going to do the things that are wrong because everything in me wants to. And that's me as well as everybody else. You know, we all want to backslide when it, if we're not careful. And it's real easy. Don't believe it? Just how many looks do you give to that person who comes into your site that is, is, is gorgeous and beautiful? That first look's not so bad. That's natural. The second, third, fourth, the, the, the staring at them with your tongue out uh, panting, that's the sin. <laughs> All right? Now, we probably wouldn't actually stare, stare at them that way, but, you know, in our mind we already are. <laughs> you know, how easy is it for us to get caught up if we're not careful? And we need to be very, very careful about this. And he says, they called unto the Most High, but none would exalt him. 
I find this amazing how many people do say they do not believe in God, but when bad things happen, it's God's fault. You know, I am, I'm an atheist and bad things are happening. It's all God's thought. I didn't uh, fault. I, I thought you didn't believe in God. Well, it's still his fault. You know, it's his fault because, you know, okay. But they don't exalt him. You know, it, there's a God out there. He sends bad things. He sends the floods. He sends the famines. But I'm not going to lift him up when things are going, seem to be going good. There's no such thing as God when everything's going good, but... This God is always bad. And so many people look at that, and this is what he's saying here. He goes, they called unto the Most High, but they would not exalt him. Our job as Christians is to exalt God. Lift him up. Call on his name and lift him up. And not be dependent on our own thoughts. Not be dependent upon our own ways. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not into your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your path. That's exalting God. Lifting him up and saying, God, it doesn't make any sense to me, but I'm going to follow you. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me, but you say trust in you, and I'm going to trust you. Yeah. Uh, and then, this is one that we are all going to understand real well. How shall I give them up, uh, give you up, Ephraim, how shall I deliver you, Israel? How shall I make you as Adma? And how shall I set you as Zebulim? My heart is turned within me. My repentance are kindled together. God's love for him. He goes, you're due for judgment, but how am I going to do these judgments? God's heart is not to bring judgment. Now, I'm sure all of you know where Adma and Zebuim is. These two cities were in the valley of Sodom and Gomorrah, and they were included in the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. So if you want to read about them, you can go to Genesis 10, 19, Genesis 14, 2, and 8, uh, and Deuteronomy 29, 23. And it talks... <laughs> Genesis 10:19, Genesis 14, 2 and 8, 2 and 8, the whole, the whole section, but specifically those two verses talk about them, and Deuteronomy 29:23, And it's always linking them up with Sodom and Gomorrah. They were in that valley. And you know, we think about Sodom and Gomorrah, and we just think about the two cities but that entire valley of lush, uh, beautiful land was destroyed because of the sinfulness of the people. And remember, Lot chose that valley because Abraham goes, Lot, you and, you're, you and, you're too many people. I've got too many people. He goes, Lot, you pick the land that you want. You go one way and I'll go the other. And it says, Lot raised up his eyes looked down in a beautiful valley and walked by sight and chose the valley where sin was rampant and then ended up losing everything by going that direction. And there's a lot in that story that we're not going to go to today, you know, but, but you know, ideally, Abraham was the elder. When he said, give me, you know, you, you look and you pick, Lot's correct answer should have been, no, you're the elder, you pick, and I will take the 
but Lot had already had a heart that was turned away from the right way of doing things. And he goes, I like that land over there. Didn't ask God, didn't do anything. He just says, I like that land over there. Oh, yes. Yes. Uh, the entire Canaanite civilization, that whole, that whole area was already corrupt when Abraham was there. Not as bad. God was given another, after Abraham was called, he gave him 430 years to reach the pinnacle of their de deprivation. But they already, they were already well on their way toward toward destruction. Now, Sodom and Gomorrah were worse than, they were ahead of the curve. But when Israel came into the land to conquer them, they were so bad that they did not have a word for all the sexual perversions. They were just called sex. And we're talking about every perversion was practiced in, by the Jebusites and the Hittites and all of that. Every perversion was there, and that's when God judged them with his people, Sodom and Gomorrah were way ahead of the, <laughs> way ahead of the curve. You know, they got judged. You know, 400 years early. You know, 400 years earlier. Uh, so, these are these towns right there. They're in that valley of Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, and it says, "My heart is turned within me, or overturned." God's love for them, and yet the need that they need that judgment. And he goes, "My." Re my repentings are kindled together. So God is sitting there and he's struggling. I love you guys so much and yet judgment has to fall. And this is the problem in today's world. People see love as something that allows anything to go. That is not love. You know, I love my kids and the last thing I want to do is watch them play on I-40. You know, well, I love you so much, but you, go, you want to play on I-40, you go ahead and go out to I-40 and you go play in the traffic. That is not love. You know, I love you so much, you just go ahead and get into the, the cleaning cabinet, drink anything out of the cleaning cabinet you want, no problem whatsoever. But the world will try to tell us that that's love. Don't put any rules on them. Don't, don't try to protect them. And God is struggling here. He goes, I... I want to love you. I want to keep you safe. But yet, this judgment must happen. And so his heart is pouring out to them. Please turn to me. Please return to my love. I don't want to do this. When I was growing up, my dad, and I used the same statement, my dad's statement was when it was time for a spanking, this is going to hurt you more than it's going to hurt me. Well, growing up, I'm sure I was thinking, yeah, right. You know, I'm the one that's going to have the sore bottom. I'm going to be the one that's going to have a hard time sitting. But, you know, the first time I had to spank one of my kids, I really understood what, his, what he was saying. I knew they needed the discipline, but the last thing I wanted to do was cause pain. You know, and you're torn. You know, it's, you, you need this. <laughs> And I know that I have to do it, but I don't want to do it. And this is where God's at with Israel. I love you so much. You're headed down the wrong path. I know you need this discipline, but I don't want to do it because of how much I love you. And so we see all of this going down in here and God saying, 
you know, and really he's saying, you know, he's, he's matching them up to the Valley of Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, because of their walking away from him and their, and their, their idolatry and their, their uh, harlotry in, in their, their relationship with him. And God's heart is broken. And he's going, I love you so much, and I know that you have to have this. I, if you would just turn to me, we wouldn't have to go this route. And yet they would not turn. They would not turn. And for us as Christians, it's really simple. God says, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. So God's standing back there with us, saying the same thing. If you'll just confess, you'll just turn away from your sin, I'm waiting here to take you back. And if you don't, well, I guess I'm going to have to get the belt out and, and discipline you, but that is not God's desire. He wants to give us good things. He wants to bless us. And this is the beauty of this chapter, showing God's love for his people, his absolute love that says, I just want to reach out to you. Verse 9, I will not execute the fierceness of my anger. I will not return to destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not man, the Holy One in the midst of you. I will not enter into the city. They shall walk after the Lord. He shall roar like a lion. When he shall roar, then the children shall tremble from the west. They shall tremble as a bird out of Egypt and as a dove out of the hands of Assyria. And I will place them in their house, saith the Lord. Ephraim compasses me with, about with lies, the house of Israel with deceit, but Judah yet rules with God and is faithful toward, uh, with the saints. So here's God saying, I will not execute the, full, the fierceness of my anger. Now God is going to bring judgment on them. But what do they deserve? They deserve death. They deserve to be executed. And God says, you're not going to get the full fierceness of my anger. He is holding back. Just like when I talked about the spankings. If you, I've told people, if you enjoy hurting your kids in the spanking, then you should not be spanking your kids. All right? If you, des- if you enjoy causing pain to somebody, then you're not the one that needs to be doing the discipline. God is saying, I love you so much, I'm not giving you the full, the full fierceness of my judgment. He goes, I will not return to destroy Ephraim. Why? Because he says, I am God and not man. He had made a promise to them. He had made a promise that they were always going to be a people, that they were his people. And even though they are sinning and walking away from him, God still says, I'm buying you back. I'm redeeming you back from the sin market. He goes, I'm going to send you into captivity, but I'm bringing you back. When, when the southern kingdom got sent into captivity, they were really fortunate. They knew exactly how long they were going into captivity. God says, you're going into captivity for 70 years. And the why, if you remember the why, he says, you have not practiced the Sabbath of the land for 490 years and now I'm going to make their land rest. So he put him into captivity for 70 years. They had missed 70 Sabbaths. Every seven years they were supposed to not plant their fields and live on the 
live on the abundance of the sixth year and live on the land, off the land, and not cultivate it. And God says, I will take care of you. I will take care of you. Every seventh year, I will, I will take care of you. And Israel pretty much never did it. And God said, I'm going to send you into captivity for 70 years. I'm going to get the land's Sabbath. The land is going to rest just like it was supposed to have. And so here we see God saying, I'm not a man. I'm the Holy One in the midst of you. And I will not enter into your cities. Why? Because of the Holy God entered into their presence, his holiness would demand judgment. So he says, I'm going to stand back. You know, and it's kind of funny. The omnipresent God said, I'm not in your city. <laughs> okay. Uh, but basically he's saying, I'm not coming so close that I must judge. I'm going to live within the love that I've given you, the promises that I've given you. Abraham was told that he'd have a great nation that would not be wiped out. And this is the beauty. When you look at Israel, Israel was conquered by Assyria and came back. They were conquered by the Babylonians and came back. They were conquered by the Romans and eventually came back. They have never been totally destroyed because of God's promise to Abraham. Even though they deserved it, they deserved to be destroyed like every other nation. They followed idols. They fell into sin. They fell into adultery and fornication. They... We see throughout in various places that they fell into homosexuality and all of the things that have happened to everybody else and God says, I made a promise to Abraham. I am not recanting my promise. You deserve to punish like, like everybody else, but I am not going to do this to you. Verse 10 says, they shall walk after the Lord. He shall roar like a lion. When he shall roar, then the children shall tremble from the west. I believe now we're getting into the millennial kingdom time when God says, I'm going to roar. When Jesus returns to this world, he is not coming as a sacrificed lamb. He is coming as the lion of Judah. And he is going to rule with an iron scepter. He is coming back as a conquering king. The first time he came back meek and quiet and talking to people about God's love and how much God loves them. When he returns at the end of the tribulation period, he comes back as a conquering leader. And he's going to roar and the people are going to gather, his children are going to gather to him and realize that they have finally met the Messiah. And they're going to gather to him and it says, he shall roar like a lion and he shall roar. Then the children shall tremble from the west and they will gather together. He goes, they shall tremble as the bird out of Egypt and as the dove out of the land of Assyria. And he goes, I will place them in their houses, saith the Lord. This is kind of an interesting picture. Birds. Birds are some of the most skittish animals out there. All right. Uh, you see a bird and you get anywhere near a wild bird and they take off and fly. And some of them literally tremble. You know, they're, they're, you can watch some of the birds tremble. Some are, some are pretty bold, but they still fly away. You, know, you get anywhere near a vulture. Now, these vultures are mean. They're, they're nasty birds, but what, what's the first thing they do? They fly away. 
doves and those fly away with real ease. Uh, and he's saying, you all are going to be like birds, skittish. He goes, but, he says, I will place them in their houses. At the millennial kingdom, Israel becomes the center of the world's government. And God takes his children, he gives them their houses, he gives them great benefits, they're going to have long life again. Uh, the lion will lay down with the lamb, the, the, the children will lay, play at the aft's nest, and all of nature is restored back to the way it belongs. Not 100% because there's still sin, and sin still taints things, but it'll be very close to what the Garden of Eden was, was like before the fall of man. Even though man has fallen, even though their heart is still after, after sin, but God is going to rule and he's gonna give his, the children of Israel their place. He's gonna put them in their houses and note that it is, and the children, oops, and I will place them in their houses. This is God speaking. He will do the work. I love the fact that everything that God tells us about is that he does the work. When I become a Christian, he washes me, he clothes me in righteousness, he sanctifies me, he takes the heart of stone out of my, out of my body and puts a new heart of flesh out there, he fills me with the Holy Spirit, he's the one that makes the changes, and I get the benefits. And it's all him. And all I do... I recognize I'm a sinner and need Jesus. And then he does all these things for me, just as he will take and put Israel in their homes, in their places for the millennial kingdom. And the last verse says, Ephraim compasses me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit. The northern kingdom did not love God. They had all kinds of lies. They did not trust God. They did not follow God. They built their, their, their lives on sand and shifting sand and lies. But it does say at this point in time, Judah yet rules with God and is faithful with the saints. Judah at this time has a good godly king. And they're following after God mostly. And he goes, they're being faithful. They're being established with the saints. And this is the good news. People who are following God are called saints. All right. Now we have different religions out there, the different denominations and stuff that say, well, these saints are these really special, really special people. Well, in the New Testament, we're all saints. Why? Because we have the Holy Spirit in us. We're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. When God looks at us, he says, that's a really special person. That person's perfect. They are really special. And we may not feel like we're special. We may not understand that we are seen by God in, in holiness and righteousness. But we are to be faithful to God and walk in that. And that should also influence the way we treat each other as Christians. If we truly begin to understand who we are in Christ and who others are in Christ, that will change the way we deal with one another. Because if I want to be treated as a 
follower of Christ, a strong believer and perfect and all the things that Jesus said, I need to start treating other Christians the same way. Not criticizing, not tearing down, build them up, edify, help them understand who they are and realize that they are being sanctified just as I am being sanctified. And I'm not perfect, they're not perfect. But you know, do, we, do any one of us want to be constantly criticized because we're not perfect? And yet, the very first thing we'll try to do to others is to criticize them. <clears throat> we need to treat them the way we want to be treated and lift them up. We are talking about the bride of Christ when we're talking about other Christians. And no husband wants his wife attacked. You know, and so I can't even imagine how hurt Jesus is when people attack other Christians. Especially when Christians attack other Christians. It's one thing for the world to, to do it, but when Christians attack other Christians, I can just almost see the pain on Jesus' face and saying, why would you do that to my children? Why would you say such a, why would you do such a thing? And we need to be very careful. Do we truly understand the love of God to us and to others? And if we do, we need to express that love to others. We need to express that forgiveness to others. We need to express that mercy and that grace to those around us. And the more we learn how to do this, the better off we're going to be and the stronger the church will be and the stronger our fellowship will be because we will be building one another up and edifying one another, not looking to tear down and not looking to rip people to shreds. Because usually when you're ripping people to shreds, you're trying to make yourself look better. And you know, if we already realize that I in my flesh am nothing, but in Christ I am everything, it makes it much easier to in your flesh, you're nothing, but in Christ, you're everything. And we need to be able to understand this beautiful love picture from this chapter. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you love us. Teach us to love others. Teach us to follow you in all that we do. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, do you know God? Not just know about him. Today is the day to decide to become his child. God loves you, and Jesus came to die for your sins. In Romans 3.23, we are told, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. God says the penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We sin and deserve death and hell. However, Romans 5.8 says, But God commended his love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you so much, he died for us so that we can be forgiven and have eternal life. How do we do this? Romans 10, 9-8 says that if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Today is that day for you to come to God and truly know him. Do you know him? Do you want to know him? pray in your own words like this, God, I know that I am a sinner and deserve punishment. I believe that Jesus died to pay my sins. Forgive me and help me to turn from my sins and to live for you. If you have asked this of God and truly believe you are God's child and part of, of his family, we encourage you to do these things. First, tell somebody that you are saved. 
Second, start reading the Bible each day. We recommend starting with Ephesians and then the Gospel of John. Find a good Bible teaching church. If this is your, your day of salvation, you can contact us and we will send you a booklet to get started on your new life and are available to help you with any questions you have about the Bible. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by mail at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona 86431.